Good evening, everyone. I'm Seth, one of the pastors here at Highway San Jose. So glad that you made it out with us. It's good to see you. And welcome to uh, Advent, the season where we recalibrate our hearts to wait for God by reflecting on Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago and on his return um, to this world as a king. And with the tsunami of craziness and consumerism that's just started up, it's happening, people. The train has left the building, if you haven't noticed. Uh, Advent is really important because it gives us space in our lives to sort of slow down and connect with what's most real, and that's the coming of God into this world. And um, this year, we're calling our Advent series Songs of Advent. In the birth story of Jesus that we get in the New Testament, there are moments where people break out in song. These are songs about uh, something wonderful and mysterious that happened in ancient days, in days um, long ago, and these are our songs too, because like Israel was waiting for God to do something, we're waiting for God to do something too. Advent is really about waiting. Um, all is not right in the world, and it's easy to get stuck on that, and these songs remind us of the hope that's to come, and they can help us to wait well. So over the next five weeks, we're going to look at five different songs we get in the Christmas story, five songs sung by five unlikely people, five songs we think that can help us um, to wait in this really strange sort of in-between time that we find ourselves in where Jesus has entered the world um, and we wait for his return. So it makes sense, I think, to start off at the beginning of the story, shall we, with a song that broke a very long period um, where God was silent. And it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and it says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So the story starts off with a problem. Zechariah, priest, and Elizabeth, um, his wife, they have no son, they're childless, and they're well past child-rearing age, so there's not much hope for a child in the future. And in that culture, um, being childless was a very shameful condition for a couple to be in, particularly for the wife. So there is some obviously personal concerns that they have here, but there's some larger ones as well. Remember that the backdrop for this whole story is that Israel is under the rule of the Roman Empire. And it had been several centuries, actually, of being ruled by one empire after another after another. The Jews were a conquered people. And Israel had no land. They had no king. And it had been about 400 years since God had given the prophets anything to say to, to his people. So Israel was really stuck in this long and dark period of silence. But there was another thing in the backdrop, too. Um, that, you know, although that there was something wrong in the world... There was this larger hope, too, uh, because there was this promise that the Jews held on to that God would free them and would send uh, the great prophet Elijah to come back and pave the way for this new king to return. And so people were waiting for that. So faithful Jews like Zechariah and like Elizabeth, they were sort of stuck um, in between this sort of agony of the present situation. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it, it included being childless. And so they're stuck between that and a hope for a new reality. So there was, there was this ache of waiting 
that people were under. There was this longing for change. And so that's how the story begins. And so one day, Zechariah is called into the temple to burn some incense there, and an angel appears to him and says this, verse 17, verse 13, sorry. Uh, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to their Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. I love how the parents have to get straightened out here. Uh, And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So amazingly, Zechariah is told that his wife's going to have a son, and the son's going to be like one of the great prophets in Israel's history, Elijah, like the Abraham Lincoln of uh, of Israel's history. And he was going to get people ready for this new king that's going to come. Now, understandably, Zechariah has some trouble accepting all this news, so he asks the angel, you know, how can I be sure that what I'm hearing is true? And so the angel says to him, look, I'm standing right in front of you, I'm telling you this, so that's your proof. And so in this sort of dark, ironic twist, the angel makes Zechariah unable to speak, and he stays that way all throughout uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy. So, um, zippity-zip, fast forward, nine months, Elizabeth has a son, they bring the son to the temple to be circumcised, and people ask Zechariah there, what is the name of your son? And so he's able to scratch out the, the name John on a tablet. This is the name that he was given by the angel. And suddenly he's able to speak. And these are the words that comes out of his mouth. And it's known now as Zechariah's song. Verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to, re- to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. The horn of an animal, like an ox, for instance, was like a symbol of power and strength. So this horn of salvation is like God is raising up this person with this power to free people. And so what does that look like? 71. Salvation or freedom from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the path of peace. Now, it doesn't really rhyme all that much. No, not like a top 40 song or anything, but it's deep. It's deep. Zachariah's song is about hope that's finally come. It's about hope that's finally come. God was finally making good uh, on his ancient promises. A new king was coming, and for Elizabeth and Zachariah, a child was coming as well. So, This ache of waiting was finally over, 400 years of it. God finally broke the silence with this song. God broke the silence with this song. And the song is about a king, but it's about way more than just politics, actually. Um, Because there's this sort of deeper and wider meaning to it all that you get in the last few verses, verses 77 through 79. It talks about 
the forgiveness of sins. It talks about the mercy of God. Um, it talks about being rescued from death. It talks about light coming into darkness. Do you get the imagery here? It talks about peace and wholeness. This song is about what life looks like when God's way in the world takes root, right? Things change. There's this new way of being. There's this new way of relating to each other. There's this new way of relating to God, um, a new way of being human. So wounds are healed, um, and people are coming together. And Jesus was coming to show us the way. Um, now, zippity-zip again, fast forward 2,000 years, and we're in this sort of strange, we're in this sort of strange time, in between when Jesus first arrived to show us what this new thing God is doing really looks like on the ground in sort of concrete terms, and when he'll return to make it complete. And scholars call this time the now but not yet. The now but not yet. Like we get glimpses of this new reality that God, is, that God is building. We get glimpses of it. It's all around us. We can see how there's wholeness in the world. When people come together, we can see this happening, but we're not fully there yet. You know, we got a long way to go. The world's got a way to go. There's more to come. So we're waiting. We're still waiting. Um, we're waiting for that family member to change. Or we're waiting to start a family, and it's been a long time of waiting. We're waiting um, for that situation at work to change, or, or for the path of our careers to be made known and complete. Um, we're waiting for the person in our life that has trouble with their health to get better, right? We're waiting for people in our communities who are vulnerable to, to have care extended to them, to be taken care of, um, to be protected. We're waiting for the suicides that are happening in our high schools to stop, right? We're waiting for our kids to stop killing themselves. Do you feel me? We're waiting. Um, we're waiting for racism and sexism and elitism and all the isms of life to fall away so that we become one humanity again, just like God intended. We're waiting for healing to come in Chicago, in Minneapolis, Paris, in the Middle East, we're waiting. We are all waiting for something. The silence might have been broken with God in the song a while ago, but it often feels like God is still silent. It feels like God is still silent sometimes. And we're waiting for God to speak again into our lives and into this world. So, how do we wait? That's the question. How do we wait? How do we wait in this weird, strange, in-between time, this now but not yet time, without getting stuck in it? How do we do that? Well, Paul, in his letter to Romans, talks a bit about this. And there's a few ideas, there's a few things um, that pop out that I think are helpful for us to look at. So let's do that. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 19, says this. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Like, we're waiting for this thing to happen. We're waiting for this new reality. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Asked the Riddler. But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. Paul, in this passage, is talking about the ache of waiting. And in verse 19, he says, all of creation is groaning. It's like the whole world, everything around us is just longing for this new thing to come, longing for things to be made right. Then in verse 23, he says, not only creation, but we're also groaning. Um, we're groaning in our own lives. In other places in the Bible, that's called lament. And to lament means to cry out for what's not right in the world and to long for God to bring something new. We have to acknowledge the hurt and the pain of life. It's an important part of waiting. When Christmas is only about the gloss and the, tin the tinsel and the shiny things and pretending like everything in right is right in the world and life is okay, we miss the whole point of what the story is about. And that's that God came into this dark world, this dark place, and it's still dark, actually. And Christmas can be a real painful time for people who are going through some stuff and feel like they have to celebrate and be happy when the reality of life is too hard for that. But you know what? We can't be ashamed to lament. It's important that we lament. Um, last year, Highway started a different kind of Christmas service um, called The Longest Night, where people can come together and have the space to lament, to acknowledge the sadness of life, to acknowledge the concerns of life and the world around them. And, to, and you know what? To see that they're not alone in the struggle. That's real important. Um, to, see, to, to see that other people in the community are groaning along with you too. That's real important. And it was amazing to see how many people came out. And I think that it was a real meaningful and a real deep and a real special moment. And we're going to do it again this year. The amount of people that came out, and I think how meaningful it was for people, says that we need a place for that. To lament is important. Um, and we're going to do it again this year, actually. We're going to have a, a, the longest night service next Sunday at 7 p.m. down at Palo Alto campus. And it's just enough time for you to finish up here and go there. And um, take part in this, because it's an important part of what Advent's all about, actually. So, lament is important. And then, there's this other thing that's almost like the polar opposite of that that he talks about, which is hope. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. So lament is about the reality of the present and the darkness of the situation, but hope looks beyond the problem to a better future. Um, and it's energizing, right? Um, my relationship will get better. It's a sense. My relationship can get better. My, the situation at my job can get better. The cause that I care about, that thing will get better. The education system will get better, whatever it is. The problem that we run into is that we tend to have very specific ideas about what getting better actually looks like. Um, Maybe you said this before. My relationship will get better if this person changes in this way. You ever said that? Okay, I have. Not talking about my wife, though. She's perfect. 
Seriously. Uh, I'm going to get a good Christmas present for that. Okay. Uh, my job situation will get better if I was doing just this one thing that I really like. Um, the education system will get better. This cause that I care about will get better if these people, you know, just did this. So it turns out that a lot of our hope is about wanting to control the future, looking for a specific outcome, wanting for life to come out um, in this uh, certain kind of way, and it can be very disappointing when it doesn't. So you change your relationship or your job or your friends or your cause or whatever um, that you're involved in because it's not working out the way we want. But Paul says that hope is about what's unseen. That's verse 24. It's not about necessarily getting this clear picture um, that you have for life and like controlling things and managing things for that, for that end. Actually, it's about giving up control and allowing God to mold and shape you in that time and trusting that God's gonna do it based on God's love and it's not gonna happen based off of our fear about what we wanna happen and we're afraid of missing out or we're not getting things right. So waiting is about these two things, actually. It's about lament, and it's about this open-ended hope that we have. We need both. If it's just lament, then we get stuck in the problem, everything's bad, and you get sort of sunk in the time. But if it's just about hope, and specifically this sort of narrow vision of life that I think I need to have, is if it's just about that, then we get antsy and idealistic, and we switch around, we're never satisfied, always looking for the next thing. Um, we need them both actually. And that gets to this last uh, piece here. This is verse 25. Patience. Um, verse 25 says, for we hope for what we don't have, so we, went, we wait for it patiently. Um, patience brings these two things together. It brings lament and it brings hope together. It's about lament over the problem um, or the hurt, acknowledging it, and also holding on to this belief that God is doing something about it right there. Right there in your life, in the present. Doing something that we can't imagine. It's this open-ended hope. That's the hope piece. Hoping for something that's already begun. Right, Paul said, for in this hope we're saved. That's past tense. We're saved. We have it. So, patience is not this sort of passive, empty sort of state, just sort of blah, you know, just kind of sitting there, right? It's being fully present in the moment. Not looking past the moment because we have this belief that something is already at work in us, that God has already spoken. Maybe in a way that we can't understand. Um, how radical is that in this culture? I mean, we live in this crazy culture here in the Silicon Valley where everything has to be fixed and everything has to happen fast and we can only have successes and problems are not okay and we miss maybe the reality that God tends to speak to us most loudly in the problem and not the successes. But um, we're conditioned not to wait. Waiting is hard. Um, a few years ago, I was in seminary. Uh, this is a place that you go for training to be like a pastor or um, a theologian or what have you. And I went in not knowing what I wanted to do when I graduated. It was like a three-year program. And um, the, uh, 
I did know one thing, though. I didn't want to work at a church. And so here I am. Yeah, worked out exactly as I thought. Sure did. So it was a career change for me. I'd been in this world of finance and Wall Street and spreadsheets, and then I stepped into this world of Leviticus. You know, you can imagine. It's quite a change, quite a shock. But, you know, initially it was energizing. I was, um, I loved learning. I loved these new ideas that I was um, immersed in. But the thing, you know, the thing about it was that I was also in this program with people that were, like, way younger than me. I was um, 35, and everyone else was, like, 20 or 12 or something. And they were either one of two things. They're either a youth pastor or a worship leader. And here I was, like, a year removed from working at this big Wall Street hedge fund where my boss was about to be indicted in this massive insider trading scandal. And so I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm sitting in the room with these other people. I'm like... They have no idea where I come from. <laughs> so the strange thing was I felt like I didn't fit in, but I thought I was supposed to be there. Kind of a tough, you know, tough spot to be in. So a year goes by, and I'm doing okay in my classes, but for the life of me, I couldn't see where this whole thing was going. I did not know where, I mean, the time is ticking. I'm going to graduate soon, and I didn't know where it all was going. Um, everyone else had a career plan. They wanted to be a missionary. They wanted to be a pastor. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just felt totally lost. And I had no answers. I had no answers. I call this, I call this time the dark period. And uh, God was silent. God was silent. So I remember this one afternoon driving home from class, and I finally had it. I was like, I had this meltdown, and I got in the shouting. The cars next to me must have thought something was wrong with me because I was like shouting out about God, about the whole thing. Like, why would you drag me to this place to study all this stuff about you, right, and then just kick me to the curb with no idea what I'm supposed to do? It was like this, I felt like it was a sick, twisted, cosmic joke that I wasn't getting. Or maybe I was the punchline or something. And I was angry about it. I was angry... I'm too angry to see how anything good could have possibly come out of the situation. But you know what I think was underneath it all? Fear. I was afraid. Um, I was afraid because I didn't know how things were going to work out. I was afraid because nothing around me was familiar to me. I was afraid um, because everything was unknown. And it was just such a different place from this comfy world of spreadsheets and stock quotes that I came from. And I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave bad. And I think that waiting patiently is real difficult because we're fearful, because we're afraid. Um, we're afraid of the moment. We're afraid of the emotions that we're experiencing in the moment. We're afraid what the future might hold for us. And it makes us feel alone. And that God is silent. I felt alone. Um, but what if we're not alone? What if we aren't the only ones waiting? What if God, what if God is waiting too? There's this part in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter three. 
that gives an image of this, I think is kind of interesting. Um, it's where Jesus is addressing some of the early churches in this vision that the apostle John has. And he says to one of them, this is in verse 20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they with me. Quite, quite an interesting image. Jesus standing outside the door and knocking and waiting for an answer. What if Jesus is waiting for us to let him in? Into the pain and into the silence. Um, wherever it is that this place in life that we want to change. What if Jesus wants to be led into that place so that he can come in to that space and he can eat with us, right? Uh, if you let me in, he says, I'll eat with you. In that culture, eating with someone is to become their friend, their friend. And a friend, a good one, doesn't try and fix your life the way you want it to be. A good friend sits with you in your stuff and tells you that you're loved and tells you that you're loved. And in that process, helps to give meaning to what you're going through. Um, and isn't that what we're all looking for, really? We're looking to know that we're loved. Um, we're looking to know that there's a bigger love at work that's bigger than the moment, bigger than the thing that we're going through. Without that understanding, without that sense, we can't wait patiently. We can't do it. Lament is just empty complaining and hope is going to be empty itself. You know, when I was um, crying out to God in the car, there was definitely some anger complaining going on, I got to say. Lots of, lots of anger complaining, lots of language. But I think that was actually the beginning of letting him in. And um, it was like what I call holy abandonment of the need for answers. And I got the sense that I was supposed to just be, to just be there and have this belief that there was something at work inside of me that I couldn't understand. I'm not saying I have the answer to my life or the answer to anyone else's problems in life. I'm just telling you what happened to me. Just be. And that was a very freeing experience, but a very terrifying one as well. But that's what it means to wait. That's what it means to wait. So, we're all waiting for something this Advent season. What are you waiting for? Where is your silence? Where is your pain? Where in life um, is Jesus waiting to be invited in so that he can sit with you and eat with you and break the silence and let you know that he's committed to you and that he loves you? Where in the world or where in your life is that place? So as we're, we're gonna close um, here with some time to reflect on that now. And we're gonna sit with a couple of minutes of silence and ask yourself the question, where is Jesus knocking? Where is that place? Where is your silence? Where is your pain? And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna break that silence with a song. 
Um, just like God broke Israel's silence with the song. Um, God broke that ache of waiting, right, with the song. And it's a song um, that Israel would have sung. It's a song about the, the coming hope of the Lord. It's a song like Jack, Zechariah's song as well. But it's our song too. Because uh, Jesus has broke the silence and he's waiting to be let in. So I hope this moment is meaningful for you.